Welcome and good morning to all of you. It's good to be with you in worship. Uh, we'll go through a few announcements before we get started. Uh, the first is an announcement that's not on your bulletin, but the ladies' Bible study that meets on Mondays is meeting tomorrow at 11 a.m. in the library. So if you're part of that Hebrews Bible study, they're meeting tomorrow at 11 a.m. Night Circle is also meeting at 6 p.m. in the Family Life Building with Laura Brown as the hostess and Rachel Brownlee as the lesson moderator. There is going to be a cherub choir. Uh, the cherub choir is going to be meeting again starting on Wednesday at 5.15 p.m. in the green room of the Family Life Building. If you have any questions about that, uh, talk with me or Heath and we'll get you connected to that and information for that. Lastly, the Kids Connection trip to the Noxaby Refuge is on Saturday. If you don't know what this is, uh, again, please talk with me or Heath and we'll get you information. But that is going to be a great time of fellowship for our young people. And there's information that Midge can get you as well if you're not registered for that. That is all we have to announce this morning. Uh, take a few moments to prepare your hearts and minds for worship. We'll do that as the music plays.
Every Sunday morning, every Sunday evening, we start our service with a call to worship, and it's not an optional call as if you would like to or not. It is God's supernatural call to you to bring him the worship that is due his name, and that is good news to us. Uh, So would you please stand for our call to worship from Psalm 107, verses 1 through 2. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble. Would you please pray with me? God, your steadfast love truly endures forever. Would you please send us your spirit this morning to guide us in this worship service, to allow our hearts to be soft, to receive your word, to be changed. And God, would you use this time uh, to glorify your name first and foremost. And as we glorify you, would you cause us to uh, pour out in praise for the rest of this week in your name. So we pray, Lord, that you would bless this time of worship and lead us through your Holy Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Our first hymn is hymn number four, and you'll remain standing. We'll sing together hymn number four.
you would remain standing, you can take your bulletin and we'll confess our faith together as we give God all praise and glory through this. So we have the Apostles' Creed printed in our bulletin as a way to confess what we believe about God, about what he teaches about us and the world. So would you would, believer, what is it that you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. Our Old Testament reading this morning is from 1 Kings chapter 17, verses 1 through 9. I invite you to turn there if you would like to read along. 1 Kings chapter 17, verses 1 through 9. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord the God of Israel lives, before, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And the word of the Lord came to him, Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Cherith, that is, east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook. And after a while the brook dried up, because there was no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I invite you now to join me in prayer, and at the end of my Prayer, we'll pray together the Lord's Prayer. Would you please pray with me? Lord, you are from everlasting to everlasting. The world is established and will never be moved because you have said so. Your word and your decrees are trustworthy. Your salvation is sure. And Lord, this morning we declare your glory. We declare your glory among the nations. And we confess, Father, that even as we sing of your glory this morning and confess it with our mouths, oftentimes we're much more comfortable not speaking of you and your glory during the week. When our friends or coworkers are hurting or they're in need of a challenging word or there's opportunity to speak of your love, we rarely speak. We make excuses Sometimes we excuse ourselves by saying that we'll get a better opportunity later or that if we spoke of you, 
the relationship to this person would be damaged somehow, or our reputation would be negatively affected, or we'd, be, we'd look like a fool, or we settle for trite sayings that sound spiritual but are empty of any comfort and truth. Lord, you remind us of this in these moments. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. And so we pray, Father, that you would make us people who aren't afraid to bring our worship of you out of this room and into our schools, our workplaces, our social circles, that we would remember your word where it says, one generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works I will meditate. God, would you make this true for us this morning? Would you cause us to speak of the might of your awesome deeds and to declare your greatness? That you would make us into people, as the psalmist says, that pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and sing aloud of your righteousness, not just on Sundays, but every day of the week, wherever it is that you place us. God, we pray that you would make your presence so real to us that we can't help but talk about you. And in talking about you, encourage and strengthen the hearts of those we're talking to in our own hearts. God, as we think about your world, in which so many of your people around the world are worshiping you even now, we remember the countries that are once again embattled and fighting in the Middle East, whether it's Syria, Iraq, Iran, Israel. God, there are so many nations at war with one another, and we pray once again that you would bring peace. These countries are so frequently at war that we lose the conception that they are all people made in your image and that they are worthy of protection and love and that your gospel is at work there just as it is here. So God, be at work there and bring peace and healing to the nations. We ask you would, that you would lead us now in the prayer that you taught your disciples how to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. In your bulletins, you'll find a handout for our next song, which is In Christ Alone. If you don't have one of these printouts, you can look for your neighbor to share with you. But would you please stand for our next hymn, and we'll sing this together in Christ alone.
You may be seated. As you're seated, we'll take our uh, morning tithes and offerings as we hear the choir continue to lead us in worship. We'll take up those offerings now.
Let's pray. God, all blessings are from you. You have given all things to us, and we are rich in you through Christ. So we thank you for this opportunity to give of our tithes and offerings. Would you use them uh, greatly for your kingdom's sake? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I would invite you to turn with me now to the fifth chapter of the book of James. James chapter 5, we'll be reading verses 13 through 20. But before I read it, let me pray for us. Let's pray. Father, send us love, send us power, send us grace. Send out your light, send out your truth. Let them lead us, that we might worship you. For we ask it in Christ's name, amen. Starting in verse 13, hear God's word. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. This ends the reading of God's word. So we've spent the last few weeks on Sunday mornings talking about worship. Last week we talked about the importance of confessing our sins to God and receiving his forgiveness. This week I want to continue talking about confession, but specifically what James is showing us in this passage is that confession is how a sick soul can be healed. So three points, how healing starts what healing looks like, and where this healing is supposed to happen. Number one, how this healing starts. In verse 16 of our passage, James says, Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. It's a really interesting passage to dive into. Uh, In the original Greek, James doesn't use the standard word for sins here when he says, Confess your sins to one another. Uh, he uses the standard word for sins, with his, which is hamartia, in verse 15, but not here in verse 16. In this verse, he uses a different Greek word that literally means falling beside. Confess your falling beside to one another. Uh, the King James translates it, confess your faults, but it carries the idea of confessing where you've fallen. 
confessing where you failed, confessing your struggles, confessing your weakness. It's not just properly sin. It's the idea of weakness and struggle. So he's telling us that healing starts with you being open and honest enough to confess your faults and your struggles to others. So when was the last time that you openly and honestly confessed a fault or a struggle that you were dealing with to a fellow church member? Now for some of you, this may not be a problem. Some of you may like talking about your problems and your struggles so much that it's a problem for other people because they have to hear it all the time. And some of you may like talking about other people's problems so much that you're a problem. But that's another sermon for another time. Some of you, the idea of confessing your faults and your struggles with another person is absolutely terrifying. You'd rather, do, you'd rather be up here speaking today than having to do that. Why? Well, basically, it's because when you confess your faults and your struggles, you make yourself vulnerable. In the art of war, Sun Tzu says to army generals, you may advance and be absolutely irresistible if you make for the enemy's weak points. So if you confess weak points, you make yourself liable to attack. And you don't want to be attacked, so you don't confess weak points. Well, here's the problem with that. If you don't admit that you're sick, then you will not be healed. That's what James is laying out for us. You can project all the health in the world on the outside. But if you're sick on the inside and you're projecting health on the outside, that means you're just a projection, you're a hologram. You're fake. You're not showing your true self to people. Jesus said in Mark chapter 2, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. If you're projecting righteousness all the time, then why are you here? Jesus says he didn't come to call you. If you're righteous. He came to call the sick. The physician didn't come for healthy people. And you can say, well, I've confessed my sins to Jesus, but if I confess my faults to people, they may use that information to hurt me. But James is commanding us, confess your fallings and your failings to others. It's not only good for you, but it's good for others around you. It's the way Jesus gives his people authority. Your authority as a witness for Christ does not come from you pretending to be more righteous than you actually are. It comes from you confessing the struggles of the Christian life. It comes from you confessing your weaknesses, but still clinging to Christ in the midst of those weaknesses. If you read textbooks about writing fiction, uh, you'll find that authors want their characters to have authority. Authority is what makes you say when you're reading a book or watching a movie, I like this character. I can relate to this character. I care about what happens to this character. And authority is usually developed in two ways. Knowledge and vulnerability. Either the character needs to be an expert on something so that you want to listen to them, or they need to be 
vulnerable. They need to have weak points that you can relate to that you say, I care what happens. I've seen this character's weakness and I care what happens to them. If you want to have true spiritual authority, then you need to be open about your struggles and your faults. We're not all going to be experts. That's not where our authority is going to come from, but it can come from us being open about our faults. You see this again, not just in literature, but in oratory. If you study public speaking and ask the question, what makes someone a good speaker? What makes people want to listen to someone? You'll, you will come across Aristotle's marks of good speech. Logos, ethos, and pathos. Logos is expertise. It's, it's reasonability. It's rationality. Ethos is credibility. The speaker has the background and has done the work to be a trustworthy source on his subject. But then there's pathos, which is suffering. It's you listen to someone and say, I can trust this person because I, I can see that they've been through the fire. I can relate to them because they've suffered, because they've struggled. So authority comes not from you being perfect, but from you being open about the fact that you're imperfect. It comes from someone being able to look at you and say, I can confess my weaknesses and my faults to this person because I can see they're a person with weaknesses and faults and therefore they won't use, they won't weaponize my faults against me. So here's something really practical in the first point. If there's someone in your life that you're struggling to have conversations with, it feels like you can't get them to open up, but you're trying, but they're just not talking, here's what you can do. Start the next conversation by confessing something you're struggling with or a fault in your own life. And I do this. I've learned this over the years as a minister. There's different kinds of people when they approach ministers and want to have conversations. Some people are scared to death. They don't want to say anything to a minister. Some people want to tell the minister their life story. But regardless, that was a joke. When I worked in retail pharmacy and I had customers coming through, they knew I was studying to be a minister. I had people who absolutely wanted nothing to do with me, were scared to death of me, and I had others who would just come tell me all their problems over and over again. But what I learned, a great way to start conversations with people who struggle talking to a minister was if I can confess something that I've done wrong or something I've struggled with, it would it would just soften the conversation to the point they said, okay, I can talk to this guy. He's not going to condemn me. It's, you can do the same thing. By confessing your faults and struggles, you show people. You don't have to fear condemnation when you talk to me. And that's how you establish authority. And this willingness to confess our faults to one another, James says, it's how the process of spiritual healing starts. Now let's talk about what that process actually looks like. Number two, what healing looks like. It starts with confession, but there's more to the process. So in verse 14, James says, Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins... He will be forgiven. So notice a few things about those two verses. First, in verse 14, the word translated sick in Greek actually means to be weak or feeble. 
This isn't just talking about physical illness. It's talking about someone being spiritually sick, being weak and feeble spiritually and in need of help. In verse 50, the, the, the English translation here, it's one of those I just want to talk to the translator and say, what are we doing here, guys? But verse 15 uses the word sick again in the English translation, but it's actually a totally different Greek word than was translated sick in verse 14. And this one means to be weary. So this is talking about someone who's weak and feeble and weary. That's the type of sickness that's being described here. Second, it says the elders are to pray over the weak, weary, feeble person. This is giving a symbolism that this person is in a low place. Imagine lying on a hospital bed and the doctor standing over you. This is praying over someone who's in a low place. And then thirdly, James says that when the elders pray over this weak person, the Lord will raise him up. So again, he's in a low place and he's being brought up. He's being raised up. There's a lifting going on here. This process is taking a spiritually weak and feeble person who can't stand up on their own feet and it's putting them back on their feet. And it's a process that leads to the forgiveness of sins and restoration. This is important because James isn't saying share your struggles for the sake of sharing your struggles. This isn't about struggle sessions. This is just just about going on and on about my problems. You know, I've heard a counselor who I respect say that if you seek counseling or you seek therapy where week after week, month after month, you're just rehashing your problems over and over again. Say, Quit. It's not doing you any good. You need a counselor who can actually do something and who can give you something to do rather than just repeating your problems over and over again. And James is saying, you go to the elders in this text because they can do something. They can pray over you. They can anoint you with healing oil. God can use them to raise you up spiritually. Martin Lloyd-Jones tells a story. struck me when I read it years ago. He says this. I knew a poor man who had been converted from a terrible life of sin and who had become a fine Christian when I was in South Wales. But afterwards, unfortunately, for various reasons, this poor fellow had become a backslider and had fallen very deeply into sin. He had run away from his wife and children to live with another woman of a very poor type. They had come to London, and there they had lived in sin. He had squandered his money, and he had actually gone home and told his wife a lie in order to get further money out of her. The house in which they lived was in their joint names, but he got this changed and put into his name. Then he sold it in order to get the money. He had thus gone very, very far into the far country. He had sinned terribly. But now the money had finished, and the woman had deserted him. He was so utterly miserable and ashamed that he had solemnly decided to commit suicide, feeling that in this deep state of repentance, God would forgive him. But he could not forgive himself, and he felt that he had no right ever to approach his family again. So he solemnly decided to walk to Westminster Bridge and throw himself in the Thames. He was actually on the way to do this. Just as that poor soul arrived at the bridge, Big Ben struck half past six. Suddenly a thought flashed into his mind, and he said to himself, The doctor, referring to me, Lloyd-Jones says, 
will just now be entering his pulpit for his evening sermon. So he decided that he would come and listen to me once more before he put an end to his life. He made his way to Westminster Chapel in about six minutes, got through the front door, walked up the stairs, and was just entering the gallery when he heard these words, God, have mercy on the backslider. I uttered that petition in my prayer, and they were literally the first words he heard. Everything was put right immediately. He was instantly restored. How did Lloyd-Jones know this story? Well, it's because the man came to him afterward and told him what had happened. The man came to him and confessed his faults, that he had been flat on his back. And the Lord used this one little prayer, God have mercy on the backslider, to raise this man up, to put him back on his feet. John MacArthur tells a story that a young man at MacArthur Seminary, a student, was struggling with his faith deeply and came to John MacArthur and said, will you pray for me? And so the two met in his office and MacArthur, this quote, he says, I said, I'll pray for you. So we knelt down on the chairs. I knelt down in the chair and much to my surprise, he knelt down, but he didn't kneel into the chair. He turned sideways and laid himself across my back. And at first, I was sort of stunned by it, but it didn't take me long to realize that this was a physical illustration of, uh, illustration of what his soul was attempting to do, to rest his weakness on my strength. You sort of ride, you sort of piggyback on the prayers of someone spiritually stronger than you into the presence of God. And God promises that he'll use that to lift you up. We need to piggyback on each other. Sometimes you need to come and jump on my back. Sometimes I need to jump on yours. This is the riding prayers part of my sermon title. This is exactly what James has in mind. This young man who's weak in the faith finds an elder. Find someone who's strong in the faith. And he says, pray for me. And he literally drapes himself across MacArthur's back, symbolizing what he's needing. I need you to lift me up into the presence of God. The other man, it was, I need Martin Lloyd-Jones to lift me up into the presence of God. In light of that, James says, verse 16 of our passage, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The word healed there can be misleading. You may have always thought of that in terms of physical healing. It's much more than that. Jesus uses the same word in Matthew 13 when he says, this people's heart has grown dull and with their ears they can barely hear and their eyes they have closed lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. It's not physical healing he's talking about there. It's spiritual healing. Peter uses the same word in 1 Peter chapter 2. When he says, Jesus bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Again, it's spiritual healing. Christ did not simply die to save you from hell. He died to heal you spiritually. 
And he often applies that spiritual healing through providing us with people who we can confess our faults to, confess our missteps and our failings to, who will anoint us with the healing oil of the gospel and pray for us in faith, believing that God wants to restore us, people whose prayers we can ride on. So that's what the healing begins with confessing our faults. This is what it looks like, going to people who are spiritually stronger than us, confessing that we're struggling, and asking them to pray for us. Now, third question, last question. Where should this healing actually take place? And James's answer is, in the context of the local church. It involves the elders. It involves one another, that famous New Testament word that James repeats here. It involves people with faith. It involves us. This is where healing is supposed to happen. Here on Sunday mornings, Sunday nights, Wednesday nights, and as we meet privately together as fellow members of this body of Christ. In that context, we are to start, it happens when we start confessing our sins to one another, our faults to one another, saying, I'm messed up, I need help, I need to write on your prayers, I'm struggling to believe, I need others to believe for me who are stronger than me. In verse 15, James says, The prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. There has been all kinds of debate throughout the centuries about what, quote, the prayer of faith that James is talking about exactly is. But here's what I think it is. It is one weak believer saying to a strong believer, I need you to pray for me. I can't believe right now, so I need you to believe for me. And it's the strong believer responding to that and saying, I know you can't believe right now, but I'm going to believe for you until you can. I'm going to lift you up into the, to the presence of God until you feel like you can do it again. There's an old saying that says, when you can't believe, let the church believe for you. And that's what James is calling us to. When our faith is weak, find someone whose faith is strong and ask them to pray for you. That's what the process looks like. And it's supposed to happen in the context of the church. But here's the problem with that. The church doesn't always feel like a place where this type of healing can happen, does it? Secular novel called Adjustment Day. Chuck Palahniuk writes this. Recovery and support groups are the new church. Traditional places of worship have been reduced to crass theaters where people go to signal their status and virtues. A true church has to serve as the place where people go in safety to risk confessing their worst selves, not to boast and display their pride. Those who attend recovery groups, they arrived, arrived defeated. They tell the story of their failure their sins, their shortcomings, to admit their culpability. And in doing so, they receive a communion with their flawed peers. The church can become a place pretty quickly where people figure out, I can't go there in safety 
to confess my worst selves because I go there in terror, feeling like I have to project my best self for fear of condemnation. But James is saying, God is calling us to receive communion with our flawed peers. He is calling us to be a people who are comfortable with other people confessing their worst selves because we know that's the only way that actual healing can happen. I want you to think about the people who approached Jesus and how they approached Jesus. Usually the people who projected righteousness to Jesus, they got slapped down pretty hard. He called them out pretty quickly. Hypocrites, whitewashed tombs, unmarked graves that people walk over. That's what Jesus says to people who project righteousness. But to sinners who were open about their sin came to him. Whether it was a woman who was a notorious adulterer or a harlot or whether it was a tax collector who was infamous for swindling people all the time, when they came to him, what did he do? He showed them mercy. I've thought about the fact that though Jesus wasn't a sinner, you'd think he would, because he wasn't a sinner, you would think he would be the most unapproachable person in the world. Well, how, how would you talk to that guy? He doesn't understand anything. But what you find in the Gospels is he actually is the most approachable guy in the world. Why? It's because though he wasn't a sinner, yet he was a sympathizer. He was sympathetic to sinners. He was a man of sorrows who was acquainted with grief. Hebrews chapter 4 says he was not unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Because he was one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He understands the temptations that we face. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus said to his disciples, Matthew 26, 38, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. Sinless perfect Jesus says to his disciples my soul is sorrowful to the point I want to die I need you right now come and watch with me I'm in a bad place I'm sick I'm miserable and I need you to pray for me and lift me up and we all know they failed they fell asleep but the point is Jesus was showing vulnerability he was showing weakness that's convicting to me as an elder, in, a teaching elder, who's the minister of this church, who's called to pray for the weak, the weary, fault-filled people. All this makes me ask questions like, am I open enough to confessing my faults that people actually feel like I can be approachable? Or, if Jesus was the most holy person who ever lived but also the most approachable person who ever lived, does that mean that I have a misunderstanding of what holiness is? Because what I tend to see in the church is people who project holiness are very, very unapproachable. We're scared to death of people like that. It's like approaching Mount Sinai rather than approaching Calvary where the blood of the Lamb was spilled. Jesus' approachability makes me ask, can people come to me and believe I won't be shocked when they confess their faults? 
Is my faith strong enough for others to ride on? Is my ministry attracting the kind of weak, weary people that Jesus attracted? Or if weak, weary people like Jesus attracted showed up, would we be shocked and be asking, what are those people doing here? Can people come to me and say, no condemnation, now I dread? Because they can come to Jesus and say that. Can they say it to us as a church? No condemnation now I dread. This is a place I can confess my worst self and find healing. Not that we condone people staying in that state. But that they have to confess it if they're ever going to be healed. In that uh, memoir that I reference regularly, Lucy Grayley, an autobiography of a face. You know, she has jaw cancer. She's had multiple reconstructive surgeries. She hates her face. Imagine a young girl whose face is deformed and what she has to carry around with her, the baggage that she has to carry around like that. She says that throughout her young years, through her teenage years, she, she was very sensitive to her face. She didn't want anybody touching it. And she said this. She went to the doctor's office and Dr. Conley, quote, examined me. He held my head in his hands touching my face as no one else had in years. It was only then that I realized how guarded I had become about my face. Simply relaxing and allowing him to touch me there was akin to surrender, the closest I ever got to actually experiencing trust. She took the thing that she was most ashamed of, the thing she was most embarrassed about in this case was her face and she surrendered and she trusted she allowed the doctor to hold that face in her hands believing he wanted good for her believing he wanted healing for her that's what healing looks like in the church as well you say i'm going to take the things i'm most ashamed of the things i'm most embarrassed about the things that hurt the most and I'm going to go in a place and place that weakness in the hands of God's people and allow them to minister to me. And when you do that, your faith grows. And you start to experience trust. That's what healing looks like. And that's what James is calling us to. Now he says, look at Elijah. We read that passage earlier about Elijah. Look at Elijah. He was a man, James says, with like nature as ours. A normal, weak, weary man. But his prayers were powerful. James says Elijah was, and again, classic Greek word, homeopathes. That's what him being of like nature is us. That's the translation of homeopathes. What's it sound like? Homeopathic. Right? What is homeopathic medicine? It's the idea of using like to, to treat like. And James is saying that's how God works. He uses like to treat like. He uses weak, feeble, frail, faulty, sinful people to treat weak, feeble, frail, faulty people. He uses weary sinners to heal weary sinners. You're tempted to think, Elijah, he was so great. James' whole point, no, he wasn't. He was a man. He was a guy, just like me, just like y'all. He's a human being. And God used his prayers to stop the rain and to start the rain. And he's saying, 
He can use our prayers in the lives of each other, weak, weary sinners, to bring spiritual healing. Therefore, confess your faults to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your grace to us today. Thank you for you giving us not only warrant, but command to be open about our faults, not to hide who we are, that we can come to you and to your people, ideally, in safety, knowing that we confess our sins. When we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness, and that you use the prayers of your people to bring healing in one another's lives. Give us hearts to seek that sort of healing, both for ourselves and for others who may be struggling even this day. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. And let's stand together and sing hymn number 629. What a friend we have in Jesus. 629. Now the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.